Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa idea in the 21st century. Life begins at the end of your comfort zone. In this episode of the Iowa Idea podcast, I sit down with John Coyle. John is the founder of the Online Design Thinking Academy and a graduate of Stanford University's D School, and he holds an MBA from Northwestern's Kellogg Graduate School. At Stanford, John's advisor and mentor was IDEO founder David Kelly. A former head of innovation for Fortune 500 Wireless Telecom, John has also been the senior vice president of an innovation consulting firm, and John is a world-class athlete in two sports, cycling and speed skating, and an Olympic silver medalist, as well as an NBC Olympic sports analyst. John is an award-winning author of two books, including the 2018 bestseller, Designed for Strengths, Applying Design Thinking to Individual and Team Strengths. John is also a thought leader in the field of chronoception, the neuroscience and psychology of how humans process time, and framing it as when action and awareness merge, time stops, and performance goes through the roof. John and I discuss how a design thinking mindset combined with persistence fueled his success at an Olympic level. We dig deep into the importance uh, to understanding one's strengths and the power of asking, what are you best at? John's journey and his insights help drive individual and organizational achievement. John talks about two tools that impair our ability to deal with complex problems, Maslow's Hammer and Occam's Razor. It was an honor having John join me on the show. I really appreciated John's stories and perspectives. I thank him for sharing his time and insights. I hope you enjoy the episode. John, it is so good to see you. Absolute pleasure to have you here on the podcast. If you don't mind for listeners, uh, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, sure. I, uh, you know, we worked together back at US Cellular, where I eventually went on to um, lead marketing strategy, customer experience, and then innovation. But prior to that, I was uh, an athlete for a good portion of my life. In fact, 30, uh, I was 30, had never actually had a real job as an Olympic speed skater. And uh, prior to that, uh, or during that period, I also was fortunate enough to be accepted to Stanford University, where I studied something called design thinking, which I'm sure we'll get into. That, that's great. I, and so many different things that I want to jump in, both as, a, as an athlete, as an innovator, as a design thinker, and how you've brought those together as an author as well, I want to dig into. But uh, if you don't mind, can you can you tell us a little bit about your journey into becoming a speed skater? Because if I remember, I thought your first passion was cycling. Is that? Yes. So I was a cyclist and speed skater. I went to the world championships in both. Uh, but ultimately, uh, cycling back then was already more professional than speed skating in terms of their organization. And so uh, I was on the what was then called the 7-Eleven team, which became the Discovery team, which became U.S. Postal, et cetera. Um, and the coach, uh, the manager, Jim Okowitz, uh, when I was 18, offered me a professional position to travel in Europe. And he said, we'll see you in Texas in February. 
uh, for the training camp. And I was like, how about June? Because I had been accepted to Stanford. And uh, he's like, this is a decision point for you, John. And so really my cycling career really as a professional ended there. Speed skating wasn't quite as organized yet. They let me continue to be on the national team while training in uh, California on my own. Right, right on. And uh, so when you went to Stanford, I'm kind of jumping around a little bit, but uh, did you go right into D school or how did you get interested in design? Well, there'll be a recurrent theme as we yeah. talk, which is uh, failure, failure for the right reasons almost always leads to amazing things. So let me define failure for the right reasons. Failure for the wrong reasons is not trying hard, not putting your effort in, um, you know, not showing up. Failure for the right reasons is giving everything you've got and still being steered away because that's not your native talent. So I was trying to be become a mechanical engineer. I struggled my so freshman year, sophomore year, I took a class called Math 202, which was linear algebra required for mechanical engineering. I failed it so miserably that I had the lowest score on the midterm times divided by three. And, uh, and I realized I had to quit that notion of becoming a mechanical engineer. And, and rather than feel what I expected to feel, which was sadness, grief, anxiety, worry, depression, I was completely relieved and happy as a clam. I was like, I don't have to do that anymore. I won't do that anymore. And I switched to the closest adjacent major in engineering called product design. And a few weeks later, I was super, super fortunate to have a guy named David Kelly assigned as my academic advisor and my professor. David Kelly, for those who don't know, is the head of Stanford's design school, D school. He's the father of design thinking, which we'll get into, I'm sure. And uh, also the head of IDEO, a innovation consulting firm. And perhaps most importantly, he was Steve Jobs' primary design partner for a good 15 years during the early days of Apple, helping to co-create the mouse, the Lisa, the Macintosh, even the early iterations of the iPhone. So an incredible design thinker um, and amazing mentor and a friend now. That that's great as a as a design nerd. I, I, I can't imagine having like a better professor and mentor to kind right. of almost stumble into than than David Kelly. So uh, are you're going to school and you're training for the Olympics. Uh, right. And I know uh, we, we've talked about uh, your your Olympic background a little bit and you have some great talks, too, that you've given about what you learned. Uh, and if you don't mind sharing that again for the audience, because I, I feel like one one of the one of your big breakthroughs was almost redefining on how you were approaching speed skating. For sure. And, you know, it's it's a little bit of that last story, the same thing. Like, so I'm at Stanford. I'm studying full time in California with no coach, no training program, very little ice time. And I still manage my senior year to get 12th in the world in the sport of short track speed skating. So I thought but that by graduating and, and accepting a full-time position with the Olympic team and training with them full-time with the best coaches and all kinds of support that I could go in the two years I had to prepare for the next games uh, from 12th to 6th to 1st. That was my, my goal anyway. And uh, they unwittingly set up a design thinking equation. Uh, they wouldn't have described it that way, but you know, design thinking in a super short process overview is first you have to accept you have a problem. Now, not everybody's willing to do that, so that's really important. Uh, then you need to define it. Do you really understand it? Really, the core of design thinking, or it's also called human-centered design, is empathy. Do you understand the problem from the shoes of the person you're solving for? If you don't, then you're solving your problem, not theirs. 
So empathy is really core. And then, uh, then and only then do you finally get to ideation, generating ideas to solve this problem, and then test, prototype, and repeat. It's very iterative, but always coming back to, are we solving the right problem? And so, you know, a couple of years prior, the problem I was trying to solve was how to become a mechanical engineer. Wrong problem. Better problem was how do I become a design thinker through the design program? I didn't know that at the time, but that's the way it worked out. So I uh, joined the Olympic team and we did some tests and they gathered some data and then they identified a problem. I did very poorly on these tests. These are supposed to be most predictive of your capacity as a speed skater. And uh, so they sat me down and unwittingly led out this design thinking process. I said, John, we have a problem. You have a low aerobic capacity. Accept, I accept, that's true. Uh, so what we, uh, and that's also defined, right? So accept that I have low aerobic capacity, define what it is, low aerobic capacity. They skipped empathy, I would argue, and they went <laughs> right to def uh, ideating a way to solve it. What we need to do is have you train harder than everybody on the team so when everybody else is doing jumps and squats, you'll be doing 100-mile bike rides and 16-mile runs. And in two years, we'll have you ready for the next Olympics. So we went right to prototype and test. And I did exa exactly what they said. And I went from 12th in the world to 34th in the world a year later to two years later, not even making the team, getting 30th in the U.S. trials that I had won two years prior while training on my own. And at this point, I'm... I'm ready to quit, right? And but it's you know life giving me that same guardrail that Math 202 did is, I I put every ounce of energy in. I I I put all you know there was nothing left. I it's not like I didn't try or didn't train hard enough. And so I got back to design thinking again, and I'm like, maybe we're solving the wrong problem here. Maybe trying to teach me to go farther faster isn't the right way to do this. Maybe improving my aerobic capacity isn't way to do this. Maybe my strengths of anaerobic power, I'm a sprinter, maybe they can be leveraged in a new and unique way. And so I quit the team, not the sport. Nobody wanted that to happen, by the way. Yeah. Uh, but I did it anyway. And I started training on my own again. And now I started really thinking about the technique and the way we raced and how everybody was skating this big wide track and short track to minimize the stress in the corners, the G forces, which is three G's if you do the math. And I thought, you know, that's the one thing I'm good at is generating a lot of power for these short bursts. So I switched to skating a very tight track, diving into each corner, doing something we call a pivot. And I practiced that every day. Now, I didn't know if this was working because I had no coach or nobody timing me. Couldn't time myself. Um, but I knew it felt good. I'd get into the flow a lot, the peak performance zone. And so I trained like that for an entire year by myself, having no idea if this was going to work. I show up to the equivalent to the Olympic trials in a non-Olympic year, because we had four more years. And uh, in my very first race back, in a sport where hundreds of seconds determined the gold from silver first from second, I broke the US record by five and a half seconds and skated more than a full second faster than the world record. And then I went on to proceed to break every single US record and set the fastest time in the year at the world championships in the 500 meters as well. That's awesome. That's design thinking. Yeah, and one one of the things that I I, I want to dig in uh, there too is because uh, I in the innovation and design space I spend a lot of time also helping people try to sort through right the the complex adaptive problem or the wicked problem yeah. for, versus a complicated or tame problem and and I hesitate to use tame but a complicated problem doesn't change it, it can be hard 
but uh, from, and, and I'm basically stealing from some of the work at MIT on system dynamics, but uh, when people are applying an old problem set, solving to a new problem, the, the basic line is that managers are really good. They're really adept at identifying problems. They just happen to push the lever in the wrong direction, doubling down yep. and making the problem worse. And that's when, when you started talking about where they had you focus, yep. they identified the problem, right? But they were applying a different a different model and like your times were, were dropping. And so I just, I find that a super interesting way, just like managers and organizations when they've made their career at being problem solvers and they get really good and optimized solving an old problem and yep. then are almost confound and frustrated when yes. the, the new problem doesn't behave and they don't get their results. So I'll tee that up two ways. Yeah. And this is in my book, Design for Strengths, but um, there's two sort of cliches or maxims. One is Maslow's hammer and the other is Occam's razor. Yeah. And this is what managers and, and problem solvers tend to do. They, they tend to combine the two. So, uh, Occam's razor states that the simplest given solution to any problem is probably the right one. And I would argue that's completely true for simple problems and almost never true for complex problems, but we get used to the simple ones. Right. And so we start to try to apply that everywhere. Maslow's hammer states is if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So these two combine. So that whenever we're faced with a problem, we look for the simplest solution, which in our past has been the right solution. And then we just go wailing away, doubling down on the thing that ain't working. And we just, then we convince ourselves that we're not working hard enough. Right. Do right. more of that. <laughs> yeah. Right. I just yep. kept working harder, not smarter, not reframing. And so that, you know, the solution really here is, is per your point is complex adaptive systems are complex and their solutions are also complex. Right. And unless you can back up and get perspective around all of the interdynamics, most often what happens is you're gonna actually create more problems with the solution than not solving at all. Yep, yeah. And if you'd like, I can give you a couple examples other than my own. No, that, that, that'd be great. So I will, there's two clients on, I might have to sort of name one, but one I won't name, it's a large airline. Yeah. And they, part of their, you know, annual research was, you know, what's pain in customers, you know, customer pain point research, right? Very common. And the number one pain point bubbling up over a few years was the interaction at the, um, the kiosk with the, during check-in. And this mm -hmm. is pre, pre days where now pretty much you're almost, almost only using a kiosk. So this is a number of years ago. Um, so you're dealing with a person still mostly. And they, found that this interaction was fraught with pain with the customer. And so they asked some questions and they got the answers they thought they'd get. The Occam's Razor uh, answers, which is, uh, it takes too long. Okay, well, let's solve that. So they spent $58 million replacing their system, launched it, and six months later, they did another piece of research and found customer satisfaction had gone down with the check-in process. And they're like, well, wait, we cut the time in half. I don't get it. So they dug deeper, did some observational uh, research which is what David Kelly and IDO always does. Yeah. And found that in the process of shortening the interaction, they also basically kept the human from ever looking up at the other human. There was no human to human contact. So they're basically just dealing with a machine and having no input into the process and got more frustrated rather than less. Another, uh, I'll just leave it with that. Yeah. Yeah. I'd have to name and I don't want to. 
No, that's cool. That's that's great. And sometimes I've uh, in the past where I've said, if you don't understand really the problem and you start throwing technology, you, you can screw up faster is basically what happens. Totally true. Or you can, or another way I say it, sometimes you can automate your screw ups. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and thanks for sharing the, uh, the speed skating stories, because I know I'm, I, I've read uh, both your uh, design for strengths and then also uh, the art of really living. So I, I want to talk about both of those, but, sure. and I know you spend time in, uh, in design for strengths, but I can I really see that, that through line. So I appreciate you talking like at a certain point, focus on your strength and how might you leverage those, but could you talk a little bit more kind of what brought you to kind of authoring design for strengths and what you hope people take away from it? Yeah, I mean, I think that Design for Strengths is really an unwinding of really great childhood guidance. So the childhood guidance is, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Kids will quit anything. And so we coach them and we were coached to never give up, never give in, quitters never prosper, good things come to those who wait. And that's fantastic advice until it's not. Uh, Scott Adams puts it this way, persistence is awesome until it's stupid. Uh, and another way of reframing that is, if you're still trying to fix your weaknesses at age 25 and up, that ship has sailed. And this has very much to do with uh, neofrontal cortical development. Our brains mostly stop developing at around age 25. So at this point, your set points for your strengths, your talents, your capacities are mostly set. Brain's still plastic, you can learn new stuff, but you're not gonna learn to become a gymnast at age 25. You're not gonna learn to become a neuroscientist at age 25 unless you're already on that path. You're not gonna, you know, complex outcomes will not come from dramatic change at those ages. And so really what I hope from the book is that people through the stories and the, and the analysis is start to realize, oh, if I'm not succeeding, if I'm not progressing, if I'm not seeing uh, the next level it's probably because I'm solving the wrong problem. I'm probably in the wrong job or I'm probably in the wrong, wrong career. Or I'm probably in the wrong relationship or I'm probably in the wrong management team, right? Because environment ultimately is the most important component. And, and so at some point you need to quit. This is really like one of the core messages. If you are not seeing success after roughly two years, because you, know, you can't be good at anything in a month, right. um, then it probably is time for you to quit that job, that career, that relationship, that team management structure and go sideways, parallel, up, down, left, right, go somewhere else because people's native talents are recognized and rewarded in certain environments and not in others. And so if you, and it can really even come down to just a boss. I, so I'll give you a specific example. Yeah. I was the marketing uh, director for US Cellular for a while and I had, I was hiring marketing managers and I hired very, you know, similar background MBA and smart and demonstrated capacity to do marketing stuff. And they'd come in and some of them would just flourish and some of them would flail and I didn't get it. And over time, what I realized is that underneath all of that resume stuff is I'm not the type of leader that likes to tell people what to do. I like them to figure it out and come to me with ideas. Some people love that and some people absolutely hate that. And I fired people that went on to great success with leaders that like to tell people what to do, right? Because that's their environment and that's okay, right? And the other thing that, that's in the book and is that strengths and weaknesses tend to be facets of the exact same thing. 
So if you're direct and honest, you're probably blunt and rude. If you're detail oriented, you're probably a perfectionist. If you're a big picture strategist, you're probably terrible with details. If you're creative, you're pro creative. You're probably disorganized. If you're calm, you're probably unemotional. If you are uh, analytical, you're probably detached. Like you, I could go on. Like yep, yep. So and and tying back to what we just talked about, the price of admission for a strength is its corresponding weakness. And if your environment doesn't value that strength enough to overlook that weakness, then you're in the wrong place. Thanks. Yeah, uh, I'm. So I've been doing some work with a company based out of the Netherlands called Human Insight, and okay. some of the work we're doing is focused more on the on the human side of innovation. And so one one of the big things that we look at is uh, basically it it's like other where does somebody prefer to be? Where are their strengths? And if you look at those like on more traditional. Uh, innovation horizons, right? Mm -hmm. Like there are some people that are just better at protect the core, right? Yeah. Just, and they like more steady rhythm, less, less variety and the opposite scale or, or side, side of this, like horizon three, there are people that are all right doing these wild experiments, failing more often than they're going to succeed. Probably. And even, and even just how do you get like, you know, kind of stealing from Jim Collins, but even in that, how do you get the right people in the right seats? Right so that they can succeed because you might have a terrific innovator, but if they're spending most of their time in a place that is that context isn't good for them, it's not rewarding. And th they probably seem like a problem child when they're not in the right environment. And totally. Well, yeah, and so two, two thoughts of that spurred for me is um, when you spend all of your time being thwarted in your natural capacities, your natural talents, your nat natural strengths, it leads to something that Thoreau calls a, a life of quiet desperation. Right. And, and frankly, I would, I would suspect that a, maybe even a majority of people actually live there their whole career, but it's safe. It's paying the bills. It's, it's not completely terrible. They have other, you know, this is 168 hours in the week. So they've got 148 for something else. But, um, but the other thing that's true, and this is to me, this is the, kryptonite in most large organizations is when there's a lack of tolerance for people's strengths, weakness, capacities, uh, they start to shut people down. Mm -hmm. So let's say you're a creative, and this is you, for your example, if you're one of yeah. the creative innovative types and you throw out an idea in a meeting and the boss with what good intentions says, that won't work, we've tried it before. So there's step one, there's, there's right. the first strike. The second strike is, will they do that again in a public meeting? Probably not. They'll come to you in private and they'll say, oh, I have this other idea. Don't want to be embarrassed in front of everybody. What do you think of this one? Oh, we don't have the budget for that. Strike two, do they bring you the third idea? Maybe, maybe not, but at some point they shut down permanently. And then here's the thing. Here's the, like the ultimate strike is people join companies and leave what? Managers. Managers. Why do they leave managers? Number one reason, my boss is not open to my ideas. So what you have happen is an exodus in enterprises of all the creatives. So they just leave and then they go on and do a startup or whatever. And then this is how these large companies that have access to all the capital, plant, equipment, money, and knowledge and expertise, and they can buy every two guy and a girl in a garage uh, enterprise in the world, still get put out of business ever faster. Now it's every 13 years. Right. Question for you to when, because uh, you kind of mentioned flow uh, and a little bit like in your training and you know, one of the big themes I've that, that you talk about 
is the notion of time and how we even frame or consider time. Do you, do you mind digging into that a little bit? Not at all. So Stephen Kotler, uh, the author of um, The Rives of Superman, which I would, for those that are familiar with the book Flow by Mikhaili Csikszentmihalyi, um, I would consider this the- Congratulations sequel. on sticking the landing on the pronunciation. <laughs> Uh, I would consider this a sequel, but yeah, you know, he describes flow as when action and awareness merge. When action and awareness merge, time stops and performance goes through the roof. And so that's the flow state. What what happens with your brain is you actually get into a state where you're actually learning four to five times faster. So your your capacity to learn increases, um, and maybe side note or not, you will release during the flow state. And by the way, the flow state is when you're at your peak performance, when you're doing very best work. The primary hallmark, by the way, of being in flow is that you're, all your internal clocks stop measuring. So you'll say, oh, time stopped or time disappeared or where did that time go? You know, three hours later and it feels like five seconds. That's, that's flow. Um, but you will release, I think in order, I'll think I'll get it right. Uh, epinephrine, um, serotonin, dopamine, ondynamide, and then oxytocin. That's a feel-good so, cocktail right there. Right? Oh, my God. I mean, as Stephen <laughs> says himself, if you took all these externally, you'd be dead or drooling. Um, but that – and this is, by the way, this is meth, coke, heroin, pot, <laughs> and ecstasy. You get them all naturally. So it's one of the most addictive states known to man, which is why, by the way, people bother to do extremely difficult things for hours on end because they're hoping to bump into the occasional flow state and that reward system keeps them pulling the lever, you know, from the old uh, inner box. Yep. My relationship to all of this research really is about a slightly different fascination, which is this notion from sports that I, I have realized totally applies to real life is that tiny increments of time matter, right? So Seinfeld, well, you can't see this visually, but picture my nose going forward, backward, backward, backward. Uh, gold, silver, bronze, never heard of you, <laughs> right? So a yeah. tiny increment of time determines a lifetime of being known for something or nobody's ever heard of you and a life of anonymity. So those tiny increments reset the trajectory in sports of what your life as a sporting person would be. Here's the thing. It's totally true in the rest of life. We are, our lives are a series of trajectory setting moments. They are not built in minutes, not built in months, not built in years. Literally, who you are right now, Mr. Arnold, or who I am right now, is a series of relatively short-term decisions that are built on the backs of many months and years. But, you know, did you ask the woman out or not? Right? Yeah. You wouldn't have children if you didn't. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, did you turn left or right? Did you avoid that car or not? And so forth and so on. So this and the reason for this, just to get to the neuroscience, which all gets a little bit back to flow, is our memory system is a two-part system. So we're sweeping short-term memory to long-term memory about every two seconds. So we live in that two seconds. That's, that's the we we are. You can hold up to seven, like if you're trying to remember right. a long number or something. Um, but that's, that's the present. That's where you live. And then every two seconds, it's sweeping that to long-term. Well, it doesn't sweep everything. It doesn't keep everything. And even what it sweeps, it might not keep. It might throw out. <laughs> right. It's never going to throw out the car crash or the yes from the woman you asked out 
Like it's never going to throw that out. So the reason for that, the hippocampus is a sweeping mechanism. The amygdala sits next to it. It's the sentinel looking for never do that or always do that. <laughs> and so when it's awake, our frame rate goes up to 10 times per second, 20 times per second. So now you're sweeping more memories and they're more highly recallable. And this gets back to when you're sweeping super intense short-term memories to long-term memory, you recall them and they change your life because you're constantly using them to make future decisions. Thanks. Yeah. And uh, if I remember from uh, from one of your books too, some of the time elements where if I'm remembering this correctly, like getting into that skill building, which you talked about, like, right, like that can be kind of chasing that, but you need a, a challenge or a, a deadline too, if yeah. I'm remembering that correctly to, to really make that work. Can you talk a little bit about about that and also just make, confirming that I'm remembering that correctly. Oh, you remember totally right. So the flow state can be triggered by lots of different things. Um, if you're a practicing Buddhist monk, you can get into the flow state through mental control alone. Um, but one of the most predictive and uh, high outcome ratio ways to get into flow is when circumstances circumstances are heightened when your emotions are on high when there's risk danger uncertainty uniqueness you can get into the flow state much faster and so when you're and this is you know this is why the adage is so true life begins at the edge of your comfort zone so when you're at the edge of your comfort zone the amygdala wakes up you're sweeping uh, memories highly recallable memories at a rate 20 30x what you would normally and those are memories you will use in the future because they're so highly recallable to make better decisions and better decisions and better decisions and so this is why being in the flow can lead to vastly vastly vast improvements in performance and i'll give you two quick examples from sports in swimming in tennis in golf in you name a low risk sport over the last 20 years the average improvement is around two percent in the last 20 years. So if it was a minute long race, they're now doing it in 58 seconds, or I did that math not quite right, yeah, 58, right. 8 point. Um, in sports that have a risk element, which is a lot of the new sports, these extreme sports, like uh, you know some of the skiing and snowboarding and uh, aerials and all of those, the level of improvement over the last 20 years is more like 11,000%. Uh, so they used to be doing double flips with a twist. Now they're doing seven times tumbles right. with twists in the middle. Like the level of, and the reason for that is because they have to be in flow. Because of the danger, the risk element, it forces them every day to be in the full flow zone, which means they're learning four to five times faster. You compound that over 20 years and you go from 2% to 11,000%. There you go. Thank, yeah, because one, and I think one example that was, that spoke to me too was, I think you'd use the, the notion, um, you might be trying to learn an instrument, like a new musical instrument, but you really got to put yourself like, are you going to perform and, right. and put, put a goal that you're going to do. Otherwise, you know, you're, you might noodle. It might not move that fast, but just speak you know, to that notion you just said of, you know, kind of the, the edge of your comfort zone. Okay. Are you going to perform this live in front of people? Absolutely. I'll give you the origin story for that. Uh, so I was talking, I was actually talking about, the way time works with a friend walking up a mountain in Mexico. And I'm like, yeah, so, you know, the, really the gist of it is 
if you really want to slow down time and experience it, more memories and get in the flow more often, you're going to have to take bigger risks. And so don't, you know, because a lot of 30 somethings get that time is speeding up and they don't like it. And they're like, oh, let me take voice lessons. Let me uh, sign up for a triathlon. Yeah. Let me um, pick up the banjo. Let me um, attend a class. None of those have a risk element, right? You, like, you can't really fail at voice lessons or piano lessons or a triathlon, even like, I mean, unless you're trying to win, right? And right. so I would, I was like, so what you need to do is not attend a class, teach one. Don't go to Toastmasters, do a TED talk. Um, you know, don't do voice lessons, sign up to sing in front of 500 people. And this woman I was walking up the hill with, Amalia, she says to me, she stopped. Like we were walking, she stopped. And I look back and so I stopped and she's like, oh, oh no. I'm like, what? She's like, you're going to make me do this, aren't you? I said, what? She's like, you know, I used to sing when I was uh, in college and when I was a teenager and then I stopped. Uh, last week, one of my old professors invited me to sing at a festival in front of 5,000 people. I said, no. And I'm like, oh, no, you, you have to. And she's like, oh, I knew you'd say that. So you fast forward. Uh, so it was six weeks away. Fast forward three weeks. And she calls me and she's in tears. And by the way, that's another hallmark of knowing that you're in the flow zone risk, uh, you know, element. Uh, if you're willing to cry over the outcomes yeah. of this activity, then you're probably right at the edge where you need to be. Totally miserable. I'm not ready. My voice isn't what it used to be. This is going to be a disaster. And we laughed off the stage, calls me three weeks later in tears saying that was one of the best days of my adult life. And the last six weeks are perhaps the longest six weeks in terms of memory creation of my adult life. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Cause that's, I remember you uh, talking about time and uh, one of the, the touchstones that you use is also like these um, almost uh, unending summers as a kid, right? That they're, they're positive, but it just seemed like they went on forever. And as you become an adult, it seems like uh, your, your two weeks vacation here or so that it just comes and goes. And, and when you started like, well, you're not building many new memories, right? So it, you're, you're just basically in a routine mode. It isn't that exciting. No. And that's, by the way, that's the, the subtitle of my next book, uh, Counterclockwise, Designing <laughs> Endless Summers, and uh, coming soon. Uh, oh, that's but great. For your point, we unwittingly are designed, our brains are designed to become efficient, right? So this is the, our brain is 3% of our mass, but 25% of our caloric burn. It's like a light bulb on the top of your shoulders. And so it, it wants to get efficient and not have to burn all of these calories. And the prime, one of the biggest efforts in the brain is memory writing. And so if it doesn't need to remember something, it's not going to. And so this is the risk. Like you go to the same place on vacation and you sit by the pool and you have cocktails, you're going to get home and you're going to say, it was great. And you're done. Yeah. But if you can create a story while you're on vacation, that's different. Now, stories all have something in common. All stories have a plot. All plots have a crisis. So my <laughs> advice to you, dear listener, is if you don't design fear and suffering, a crisis into your vacation, then you're not going to remember it. So, and so unwinding that, right? Like if you don't have a crisis, you don't have a plot. If you don't have a plot, you don't have a story. If you don't have a story, you're not going to remember it. Therefore, you must design fear and suffering in your vacations. It's pure logic. I do this all the time. Like it's part of the way I do things. My daughter's totally onto it. Like even when she was young, she was onto it. We were, she was 13, 12, 13 when we went to Mexico. We we're staying at a five-star resort. It was a speaking gig and everything was taken care of, right? Like yeah. there was no risk 
in this environment at all. And I said to her, hey, you want to walk along the beach to the town? And she's a little on to me. She's like, well, how far is it? And I said, I don't know. And I didn't really know, but I thought it was going to be like an hour, which is a long way for a 13 year old. Yeah. But we set out walking along the beach. It's four o'clock and the sun's starting to set and the water's blue and everything's beautiful. And then it's five o'clock. And then she's like, are we almost there? I'm like, I don't really know. And then at six o'clock, the sun does this weird thing in the tropics where it just drops into the ocean and disappears because, you know, there's no real twilight. So it went from light to dark in like five minutes. And then the sand turned to coral. So now we're stubbing our toes and we're like, should we go back? But that's two hours. We don't have any water. We've not had any food. We're starving. We're hot. We're thirsty. We go for another hour. We're miserable. She's crying now. And then we go for another hour, four hours in. And then we see the lights of town and then we smell the restaurants. And she looks at me with a look I'll never forget. And she says, this is going to be the best dinner of my life. And it was, here's the thing. This was five years ago, six years ago. We had squid stuffed with goat cheese with a lemon butter soft white wine with a little sprinkle of parsley. I would not remember that had we taken a taxi into town and sat down at the same restaurant. That's great. That amygdala was awake and yeah. writing. Yeah, it's funny too. And you you talked about the big question, like getting somebody to marry you, but it's uh, and a little bit of the challenge when uh, my wife Pam and I uh, we were engaged in a trip to. Paris 20 plus years ago. It was my first time there. She's a French teacher. She's lived in France. So part of our vacation, and actually turned out the day that we got engaged, I just asked, uh, is it all right if we split up for half a day? Not not a relationship, but like, can I, can I maneuver the city on my own? Yeah. And because I, I brushed up on French, but I don't speak French. Uh, It's funny how much Spanish came back to me though. (laughs) <laughs> especially visually, but I just wanted to see if I could, can I make it? And then I realized at the end, Paris isn't a great challenge for that because it is such a, a global hub that yeah. it, it is really designed to get around. But it went to a museum, but I went to Musée d'Orsay, but it's funny. Like I, can rem- I can remember getting on the train, uh, you know, taking the Metro, going to that stop, weirdly enough, bumping into somebody that I worked with <laughs> at Musée d'Orsay. And I still remember, he like Matt, Oh, hey, what are you going to do today? Well, if all goes well, I'm going to get engaged. Right? But then, <laughs> so some of that might have also been the nerves of being on the edge of oh, popping sure. the question. But sure. yeah, that 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 the entire together, day oh. is really memorable. Right, right. That's awesome. So um, one, one of the things that we've been able to talk about in the past, too, that I just, uh, for me, I find fascinating is you've also been uh, an Olympic commentator. So you've you've been part of the NBC sports teams for the Olympics. How did you how did you go from athlete to commentator, and what did what did that feel like being being in a kind of on on live TV? So it's stressful. <laughs> um, you know, it's just a weird world. I'll, I'll tell you two quick stories uh, around around that. Um, I'm going to end with the origin story, how it happened, but I'll yeah. I'll tell you a little bit about how it's like because it's definitely memorable. Um, my first day as the analyst, my boss who was my boss's boss actually was like, listen, so this is a rough and tumble environment. You're, you're going to get yelled at. You're going to get swore at. Um, you'll probably get fired. If you get fired, just keep working. If you get fired twice, just keep working. If you get fired three times, call me. So, you know, there I am, I'm in the box, I'm working with a commentator called commentator. 
And then, you know, it's short track speed skating. So the world goes to hell. Every big crash, bunch of stuff happening. And I don't know what's going on because I, I can't, I'm not in the, the, the officials' heads. Right. And they are screaming at me. Um, can I swear on this show or no? Yeah, absolutely. Right. <laughs> Boy, what the fuck is going on? Give us the goddamn answers. Man, you can't give us anything? You're fired. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I run down. I'm, I actually know the rest. So I actually get the backstory. I run back up. I'm like, here's what's likely to happen. There's the outcome. Here's the call. And they moved on like nothing happened, like nothing at all. And and I remember like hanging out with them later and they didn't even, it didn't even perturb them that they had screamed at me and fired me. Like that was just part of their normal day. So very fast paced, uh, super fun, super stressful, but uh, really cool. The origin story, how I ended up doing that is, uh, and this, by the way, gets back to, the time and, and memorable moments and and the way they are encrypted. Um, so when you have risk, when you have uncertainty, when you have uniqueness, when you have some form of beauty, and when you can be in the flow state, when you can stack all five of those, which is a, a, a difficult thing to do, but every once in a while life, life gives you this chance to do all those things where you're doing something challenging, where there's risk, but there's an amazing reward and you're good at it probably like asking your wife uh, for her hand in Paris. So you've got a whole bunch of risk, a whole bunch of uniqueness, some beauty, and, um, and you've prepped because you have this relationship that you're ready to make that decision. So I, um, back to the first story and then I'll close it all out. I trained on my own for three years and skated at the top of my game. And then in prep for the next Olympics, I got lured back into joining the Olympic team. And I, you know, it was stupid, but in my mind, I'm like, I'm finally ready. You know, I've been skating so well and now I'm ready to train with the big dogs and I'll, my performance will go even higher. Well, wrong. They could put me back on the fix your weakness program. And I ended up not winning the gold medal. In fact, I ended up not making the team. And I was so humiliated and that's the right word that I abandoned the sport hard cut, like hard divorce. I didn't yeah. talk about it and watch it and speak to anybody for more than almost eight years, but Seven years, seven and a half years later, I got a call from NBC and they're like, will you be our analyst for the next Olympics? And I couldn't say no to that. So there I am at the Torino Olympic Games and I'm you know, the analyst working with commentators as we just described. But this is this moment, this trajectory changing moment, uh, what the Greeks would call a Kairos moment versus a Kronos moment where uh, a parent pulled me aside on the 16th of 17 days at the Winter Olympics and changed the entire trajectory of my life. And it's the only reason we're talking now. So we're there. And uh, it's the night before the gold medal round for my event, the, the men's short track relay. And he said, hey, John, I want to tell you something. It's really important. I said, okay. He looked nervous. He looked uh, uh, emotional. And so we go over to the side of the room and he says, I just want you to know that we wouldn't be here right now if it wasn't for you. And I said, I, I don't know what you mean. He's like, you won't remember, but uh, 12 years ago, after you won your silver medal, you brought it to a little reception in Bay City, Michigan. I brought my son, Alex, who was 11 years old at the time, never skated before in his life. You put your medal around his neck. The next day he, sound, he signed up for the Bay City Speed Skating Club and tomorrow he's skating in the gold medal final. That's awesome. And that changed everything. Yeah. Changed everything. I started announcing, I started coaching. I started, my daughter started skating. And most importantly to us right now is I started talking about it yeah yeah i had never done and as you know this is all i do for a living like i travel right. the world and i tell this story amongst others and i've literally told that story to more than two hundred thousand people in more than 30 countries 
but it changed my whole life. That's great. Um, wanted to uh, switch because it was actually one of the things we've talked about uh, is hot peppers. So I'm completely switching gears. Are you are you are you still chasing the hot pepper high? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, okay. neuroscience and that if you'd like, but I've got <laughs> Carolina Reapers and Trinidad Marugas frozen in the freezer. I've got some yellow Trinidad's uh, ground up in a shaker. Uh, this was the first year I was unable to attend harvest because, as you probably know, I decided because of COVID to to sell everything and move into RV and drive around the country having adventures and experiences that I couldn't have in my four walls of my apartment. So I've been on the road for 10 weeks uh, all over the country. It's been amazing. Are you, are, you, are you writing a lot of new memories? Oh, I mean, we left 10 years ago. No joke. <laughs> like we we are... I'm 15 years into 2020, and I think <laughs> other than the election, the protests, and uh, COVID, I think most people won't remember anything else. Right. I don't remember for for myself other than those external things. I I don't remember May, June, or July. I like nothing happened. I sat home and read emails and watched yeah. the news. Like you know, nothing happened. So uh, one of one of the things that I'd like to dig in on, and uh, I'm stealing from Austin Cleon's book, Steal Like an Artist. But one of the things he says is when we give advice, we're usually just talking to our younger self. <laughs> and so I'd love to explore advice with folks on the show and either good advice that you've received uh, in your career uh, or advice that you wish you would have had uh, kind of talking to your younger self. Yeah. And on the on the front end, just one of the patterns I tend to see is it's usually when in a, in a story arc or narrative, the wise weird elder says something to you that seems kind of cryptic. And yep. usually as a teenager, you dismiss it. And then later in your life, you continue to unpack it, that it seems more you know, interesting the more time you spend with it. But either or both of those, I'd love to get your notion on, on advice. Yeah. Great question. Uh, I was fortunate prior to David Kelly to have a, mentor prior to that, my, my coach growing up as a kid, who, as it turns out, was a master coach. Um, he, 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 our club, little club in Detroit, Michigan produced for 40 years, 28% of all medalists of both genders of all ages on the podiums of the nationals for 40 years. And in the period that I was training with him, it was 52%. So there's eight age categories. So there's 16 gold medals. Right. Yeah. And we had at least nine of them for a decade and a half. And we're just one little club. There's thousands right. of clubs and millions of cyclists and speed skaters in this world. And, but he did this and his refrain, he had two refrains for me. So back to your unpacking two crypto things. The first, which he said to everybody, which was the core of his approach is you got to race your strengths. He just kept saying that over and over again, race your strengths. And, you know, as a kid, I didn't really know what that meant, you know, but what he, what he did for everybody underneath of that is he had a little cryptic phrase for everybody on the team. And, and mine was coil, you got to win it at the line. And I was, as a kid, I was like 11. I'm like, well, no duh. Where else am I going? <laughs> that's where that that's where it finishes. Of course. <laughs> but the, the unpacking, the complex yeah. uh, complexity under that was John coil. You don't have an aerobic motor. You only have an anaerobic motor. You only have a very short sprint. If you sprint too early, everybody will catch you and pass you. If you sprint, too late well you've gone too late therefore you must win it right at the line by the smallest of possible margins because that's your only shot that's what it meant and i got good at it i won over 400 races in my career 
total margin of victory for 400 races, about 18 seconds. Now, teammate, right. teammate, Frankie Andreu, Mike was a little bit tongue in cheek. And so his uh, repetition for Frankie was, you got to drop coil. It didn't really mean me. I was the most <laughs> notorious sprinter. So here's the translation. Frankie, you don't have an anaerobic motor. You do not have a sprint. If you do not drop all the sprinters, Coil being the most notorious, then you will get beat at the line every time. You've got to be out and gone before that finish line. Therefore, you must drop Coil. Frankie went on to nine Tours de France, fourth place at the Olympics, and our club produced six Olympic medals, 12 world champions, and as I mentioned before, you know, 52% of all national medalists for a 15-year period. That's what Mike created by getting people to double down on their strengths. So that would be my advice is figure out what your strengths are. And here's my, I'll give you my cocktail question. Yeah. I'm loaning it to you. Uh, <laughs> what are you best at? It's, I love it. Like, and people, most people like get deer in the headlights and then they start to make stuff, something yeah. up. But they have, they really don't know. Most people don't really know. If you don't know, you don't get to put on the cape. If you don't know your superpower, you don't get to put on the cape. Um, and we all have one and figuring it out is really hard. I mean, I'm, I was 46 before I had any clue at all that I could stand on a stage, speak, and that people would pay me to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. love, I, I love that challenge. Uh, a good friend of mine, he played hockey at, um, Michigan state, uh, and he was, he was captain his senior year. And I remember asking him when like what was what was the most profound thing you would hear from your coach and this it was uh ron mason would uh ask the challenge to the team do you have the guts to win and you know that also sounds simplistic but like it's it's over time it's can you gut it out right it's like and it's i know we hear cliches too you you, you know you got to play to win not to lose but my my friend said over time he's looked at this and do you have the guts to win? Are you going to persist when it gets hard? And that, that's one of those that I love from coaching a uh, high school coach of mine. You wouldn't know it to look at me now, but I ran cross country. Our, uh, our coach was a Vietnam Marine. He was a mm. distant, he ran, he ran for Bowerman in Oregon. So, oh, like, wow. and he was, he was super, in, super intense. Like, and all of all my friends that ran under him, we always look back at like, maybe some of the best lessons we ever had. Right. And I don't know if he'd be allowed with kids today, just right. The, the language, the things that he would yell at you. Uh, but um, he, he always encouraged, he said at a race, I want you to be, he'd either say pleasantly tired or pleasantly exhausted. And the, the pleasant part was that you knew you left it all out there because he right. said, you're going to, you're going to kick yourself if you feel like you had too much. So when you were talking about timing your, your finish, Yep. And yeah. And he'd, he'd get upset with you. If also, if you took a runner uh, on the court, but that runner got past you, that was something that really got him frustrated. And one of my last races uh, come out of the woods in a big clearing and the way the sun's setting in the Midwest, long shadows. And I passed a couple of guys and uh, out of the corner of my eye, I see a shadow and I am convinced that it's another runner turned out it was me and it was it was the absolute like hardest kick I've ever had to finish a race and I'm I'm not I am not shaking this person and this is going to be terrifying if I let this person pass me as we get to the shoot 
get to the shoot and as happened sometimes right with distant sports everything came out of me right just threw up all over and and i i remember i remember my coach coming up to me and just great and he was he he just said that he was a little worried about my form at the end because i was already starting to throw up as we got there but so <laughs> i didn't dare tell him that i was trying to outrun my shadow but it <laughs> So I'm always fascinated with coaching too on how you know to coach somebody where am I giving this person a hug? Is it encouragement? Am I am I going to be aggressive with them? So I always find that interesting. And I don't know. So it sounds like your coach that you, he he had great. He could he could focus on the one thing you really needed to do yep. and bring it full circle to the beginning. He, it was a strength. Here's yes. what you're really good at. Now, cool. now. Now just maximize that. And everybody on the team had their own little short phrase that was designed, you know, and in very few yeah. words, right? Win, at, win it at the line is five words. Yeah, yeah. Um, and everybody had this short utterance. This is very, you know, reminiscent of, uh, oh, who's the, the basketball coach everybody talks about? Um, Wooden? Yeah, very similar. Short, sharp utterances repeated yeah. over and over and over again until he finally got it. Like that's, yeah. that was Mike and that's, and I, I do think there are, per your last point, different variants of coaches. Yeah. Mike was a challenger coach. He only yelled and he only said short, sharp things. Um, in fact, I'll tell you a quick story, if, if, if I may. Yeah, please. Uh, he was my coach for 16 years. He was never paid, a volunteer coach, produced all of those Olympians and world champions. Um, he passed away a couple of years after I won my silver medal, and I did not go to the funeral. And I don't know exactly why, but, you know, part of me was just like, well, this is just this guy that yelled at me. He wouldn't care in my mind, you know? Yeah. And it hadn't really occurred to me that to be a challenger coach is actually even harder than being like the nice kind of coach. And so I showed up the next year to a training ride that left from his house because that's just where training rides had always left from. And his widow, Harriet, who, by the way, passed us this summer at 101, um, she pulled me aside and brought me in the house. I'd never been inside which I found odd, but she's like, I just want to tell you something. Uh, Mike was very fond of you. And I was like, I thought he hated me. She's like, no, he pushed you because he could see your strengths even more clearly than you could. He knew you'd be an Olympic champion someday. And now you are. And then she points <laughs> to a picture frame of a picture of Mike and I with the silver medal. I would never have guessed. Yeah that he had a picture of me in his house never in a million years i would never guessed it and he but here's the here's the really rough part he was my coach for 16 years unpaid volunteer coach never once did i ever say thank you ever not once and so you know if you have a challenger in your life you haven't thanked don't make the same mistake as me yeah no thank you for sharing that because i appreciate I, I had a manager early in my career and what i one of the things that she said is that uh, she believes that uh, superstars thrive on feedback. Yep. And she did say, so if, if, if people are taking the time, it's in, it's in, almost in the spirit of radical candor. If yeah. people are taking the time, they actually are trying, it, it, it might not feel good to hear it, <laughs> but right. they, they do care enough because it's, it's not like a, at a traffic light and somebody, you know, did something and you you start yelling at each other, right? This is somebody that, that wants to see something, but you know, as a kid, it's so hard to take those lessons in or, right. or see it. So Mike said three things, the most common, most common, second, most common was race your strengths. 
Third most common was Coyle went at the line. Uh, first most common was Coyle, what the hell are you doing? I mean, I heard that five bazillion times. <laughs> and it was always, you know, now in hindsight, it was always because I was doing something stupid. Yeah. Right? So it was, it was directed at the time, sharp, short, fix, whatever you're doing. And, uh, you know, and, and that really has led to something that's quite phenomenal in my career. Most cyclists crash several times a season. Most pros will crash four to seven times per season. In 35 years of bicycle racing, I've crashed seven times. Because I learned through Mike's constant harassment to always be out of danger and in the right place. I love it. I, and I do, one of the things I wrote down when I was doing research, uh, I should remember where, where I'm claiming you said this, but I'm, I'm interested. Uh, I believe you, you've said that cycling is the greatest sport. Oh, it is the greatest sport. And not, not challenging, but, but just why, why do you believe it's the greatest? What do you love about it that makes it so great? So I'll make the case, um, you know, more popular sports like football, baseball, basketball, soccer, um, they have a, a bunch of things in common. The first of which is they take a lot of time scheduled with other people. Okay. So you can't just do baseball, football, basketball, soccer on your own. Um, the second is they actually require short, sh short, sharp, very intense movements, which are fine when you're 18 and <laughs> definitely not so great when you're 30, 40, 50. Right. And if you see the person with the foot brace or the knee brace or the cast, 90% of the time, other than stepping off the curb, it is going to be because they played one of these sports as an adult. So they, they eventually almost always lead to injury, which then keep you from doing them. Okay. Now then you can move to the independent sports. These at least you can do on your own, on your own schedule. So more easy to fit them into the busy complex lives we have now. So you've got running, you've got swimming, you've got cycling. We'll just use those three. Well, yeah. Uh, running has an advantage in the short look because you can do it anywhere and all you need is a pair of shoes and you can literally do it pretty much anywhere. Right. Snow maybe is a little difficult. Um, but running is still really hard on the body. A lot of jolting. Um, almost every adult over 30 that does a marathon has some sort of sustained injury, which again, then keeps you from doing it. Um, swimming, um, I mean, it's actually quite easy on the body and it's good that it uses all of your muscles, but you got to be in an indoor habit trail. You got to have access to it. And they close certain times of the day and other people could be in your way. And frankly, it's just not that fun. So, <laughs> so then you get to cycling, which is a very smooth motion. It's both aerobic and anaerobic. So it builds muscle, muscle as well as your capacity to take in oxygen. And you can do it pretty much anywhere, even with snow now with fat bikes. And here's my most compelling argument is, Everybody that I know that cycled as a youth still does it. They still do it pretty much daily. And the most compelling of all is if you go to a bike race or a group ride, you will not be able to tell the ages of anybody in that group because it is the fountain of youth. I'm telling you, these people, these 60-somethings look like they're 38. These 50-somethings look like they're in the late 20s. There was a guy in my club who at 85 rode 25,000 miles and looked like he was maybe in his late fifties. I mean, it's incredible. The gift of youth it gives to all these people. That's my case. That's great. I'll take it. I'll take it. 
Uh, John, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I, I really appreciate it. It was great to catch up and I especially appreciate you sharing your, your insights and gifts with, with all of us. Hey, thanks for having me, man. It was great to catch up. Great to see your face. Take care. All right, man. We'll talk soon.